Uh, Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is a passage that we're dealing with here this morning. As I noted earlier in the service, um, the psalm, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're new to the Bible, oftentimes when I'm explaining the Bible and getting people familiar with the Bible who are really, really quite unaccustomed to the Bible, this is a really important book of the Old Testament, and it's found, if you crack open your Bible, you can get there, and, and I say, try it, and they crack it open, and sometimes they hit it, sometimes they don't, and I said, just turn a few pages to the to the forward or back, and you'll, you'll, you'll get there. And as I said, there's 150 psalms in all. We're going to consider Psalm 16. Psalm 16. And, you know, um, we, this is the last sermon in our ongoing series on spiritual formation. For those of you who are new here, we've been going through a series on the various tools or the means that God gives us to not only draw us to Jesus, but to keep us in Jesus and growing in Jesus we looked at a number of these tools since October. So this has been a five-month series. So we're finally coming to the end. And what we're going to be considering here um, this morning is basically um, what, are, what, are the, what are the rewards? What are the rewards? What are the blessings of being devoted to these various tools that God has given us? And we're going to be taking a look at that from Psalm 16. Now, before we begin... Um, I, want, I want to draw your attention to this question, okay? I'm going to read it. The psalmist in our passage this morning recognizes God as the source of three things, life, joy, and pleasure. The way we receive these things is through faith in Jesus Christ. The way we grow in our experience and appreciation of these things is through the spiritual disciplines we've considered over the past five months. Here's a question I have for all of us here this morning. Is your life characterized by life, joy, and the pleasures of God, or do these things remain elusive to you, that is, outside your grasp? Now, we all understand that we have ups and downs in our lives. I get that. And sometimes our joys, right, and our pleasures and our life in Christ feel somewhat compromised or dim. But the question is based on our overall life, not the valley we may be in, but our overall life. Do we experience the life and the joys and the pleasures of God, or are they for some reason honestly outside of our grasp? Consider that, okay, as we look at Psalm 16. I want to draw your attention to it now. Psalm 16, the title is, and it's not up there, and that's okay, but if you have your Bible, if you take a look at your Bible, the superscription, as it's called, that's the formal word, but the title reads like this, a mictum of David. You're like, what is that? I'll explain that in the sermon itself. Here's how David begins. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. 
I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. And then verse 11, this is where the climax of the, found, uh, the psalm can be found, the culmination of the psalm. It's beautiful, and that's the text we're going to be considering here this morning. Just one verse. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Literally in the Hebrew, it's actually joys, plural. Lord, you let us know, and you give us the taste of various joys. And finally, at your right hand are pleasures forever. More translated elsewhere in the Bible as sweet things. That's such a beautiful verse. Take a look at the overhead. Verse 11, look at the last verse. Let's say it together. Okay, join me. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know what you have there? You have a three-course feast. Prepared by God himself, the great chef. Life, joys, pleasures. As you look at your life right now, can you identify with that? Can you say that you have the kind of relationship with God and the kind of heart for God you say, my life is characterized in this culture of death and war. My life is characterized by life and joy and pleasure. That is the delights of God. You know, in Orthodox Christian theology, we confess what, what Christians throughout the years have called the Trinity as they seek to describe the nature of God. Orthodox Christianity states that God exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I want you to think about this. The psalmist here speaks about life. He speaks about delights. He talks about joys. Life, joys, pleasures are experienced between each of the persons of the Godhead, between the Father and the Son, and between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's beauty in those relationships. There's perfection in those relationships. There's no hatred. There's love. There's no sorrow. There's joy. There's pleasures. There's delight shown between them. And did you know that God created you to enter into these things, into the life of God and the joys of God and the pleasures of God? And if you don't experience these things, or you are far from them because you don't know God, you know what the Bible says? You are without God and without hope in the world. Maybe you may not always feel that way, but it's the truth. This morning, God the great chef holds forth to us the beauties of life and joys and pleasures, and he says, enter in. You say, how do we do that? 
And what is that like to enter into these things? What, what, what is the experience of these things? We're going to look at that this morning, okay? Let's dive into the psalm. When you take a look at the psalm, as I said earlier, though we don't have it on the overhead, if you look at your Bible, you'll see that it, it's simply stated in the superscription. And by the way, the titles are important because the titles are also in part of inspired scripture. So these are not editorial insertions, but they're part of the Bible itself. So we need to pay attention. And the titles are important because sometimes they give us the name of the author who wrote the psalm under the inspiration of the Spirit. Sometimes we get the geographical or historical context. So what we have here, first of all, is this is a psalm who's written by David. Now, you may be here this morning, you go, who's David? David was a king. David was a musician. David was a a poet. He was a man of God. He is arguably the most important, well-known king of the entire Old Testament. David is the author here. And we read that it's a miktum, and you go, what in the world is a miktum? Well, sometimes if you have a Bible, the Bible will have a little footnote there, and it'll say it's a, it's a liturgical term, that means it's relating to worship, or it's a musical term. A number of commentators will say this, that they believe that this miktum is a reference to a personal prayer. That, that, that Psalm 16 is actually a personal prayer where David is speaking to God. And it's a very personal prayer because the words I, me, my are used in it. So use your imagination here in just a moment and think about the opening verses of this psalm. Okay? And think about David praying personally, maybe quietly before the Lord. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And as for the saints in the land, your people, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. See how personal is? Very possibly in a form of a prayer. And when you examine this prayer, You see that that David in this prayer recognizes God as the source of a number of things, as the source of grace, as a source of goodness, as a source of comfort, as a source of of just his, his every good and more. And then as David continues praying, this prayer comes to his climax. The prayer comes to his culmination in verse 11 where he recognizes God as the source of life itself, of joys and delights, pleasures. You know what? God God has created us for these things. And, 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 And God, through Christ, allows us to to experience the beauty of these things. But we we honestly we don't oftentimes speak about our relationship with God in this way. Oftentimes we talk about the importance of discipleship and we talk about the importance of covenantal faith and trust and obedience and all these things. And well, we should. But how oftentimes do we talk about God in such a personal way that we say to the Lord, Lord, you are the source of life itself. Oh God, you are the source of joys and pleasures forevermore. That's what comes from the human heart when one is in love with
if I may say this, with a God who has created us and redeemed us in Christ. That's the way the Bible speaks, and that's the way we should speak as well. But you know, it's rather interesting that when you look at the, the history of how Christians have formulated their theology and their understanding of the Bible, which is basically codified or laid out in, in, church, in the churches, what we call confessional or doctrinal standards, you find that kind of language as well. For instance, let me give you an example of that. Some of us are familiar with, at least maybe in name, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And even if you're not familiar with it, maybe you've heard these words. It's the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it is this. What is the chief end of man? Or we could say, what, what, is, what is our primary purpose in life? And the answer is to glorify God and what? Enjoy Him. Enjoy Him forever. God has made us to magnify His name, but also to enjoy Him. Do you think about that? You think God made me and God redeemed me in Christ that I might enjoy Him. Now, a number of us here, if you are a member of this church, okay, you will know that we embrace another confessional standard, and that is called the Heidelberg Catechism, which goes back a number of years. Okay? And the first question answer is this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. I have a hard time concentrating. So, I, I, sorry. Okay. But the first question answer is basically this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Right? Many of us are familiar with this. That I am not my own but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, do you know the question that comes after that? What must I know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Live and die in joy of this comfort. The joy of it. Now, you may know this, you may not, but that confessional statement is not written in first and foremost, in the original language of English, but German. And the word for joy there is the word seliglich in the German. I'm not sure I pronounced that right, but that's the word. And it actually means happiness. What must you know to live and die, really, literally, happily? Now, I don't know if you've really thought much about that, but God's desire in our lives is that we be a happy people. Not, 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 a, not a stern people, but a, but a happy, joyful people. I've been in contexts where sometimes people come into worship and they just sit down and they've got this frumpy look on their face. And it's not just because they've had a bad week. That's normally who they are. And I think about it and go, but what does the Bible say? The Bible says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The psalmist says, when you know the Lord and you are in Christ, you know life, you know joy, you know the pleasures of God. That should be our temperament. That should be our disposition. And all of these things have been brought to us and earned for us through Jesus 
And that's why Christians are always using the word Jesus or naming the name of Jesus, because without Jesus, these things are impossible. Now, there are um, actually uh, a number of people in the world who would say, I, I am kind of devoid of these things. I don't, I don't know this life, and I don't know this, this joy, and I don't know these, these pleasures. And you say, well, why is that? Why is that? And, you know, sometimes it's because people are scared of that kind of language. Sometimes it simply seems too good to be true. Um, and sometimes even Christians who grow up in kind of very doctrinalist, legalistic circles, they go, I wasn't raised with that kind of talk, to talk about the pleasures of God and enjoying God, you know. And sometimes for people who really don't know much about this book and people who don't know much about Jesus, they, they also don't taste of this three-course meal or this feast that God has prepared for them. You say, well, why wouldn't they want that? Why wouldn't they want that? And the answer is, I don't know how to put this, because their taste buds are not accustomed to it. Kids, let me ask you this. Do you like to go to McDonald's? Like to go to McDonald's? Who doesn't like a good burger and fries, right? When I was a kid, like every kid, I loved McDonald's. When my parents would have special meals, oftentimes like even American Thanksgiving, it was the tradition. Everybody had a carved turkey, right? My dad would just go outside and he would grill steaks, but I remember as a kid, he never grilled me a steak. He grilled me a big burger to enjoy because that's what Phil could handle at that age, right? But as we get older, our taste buds change. And as we mature, we get a taste for steak and no longer for hamburger. There is a lot of people in the world who are devoid of the feast that God has prepared for them because, in a sense, they're imbibing of McDonald's and they don't have the taste for these very things. How do you cultivate a taste? That takes time. But this is one place where you start to cultivate a taste for the things of God. But there are many people in the world who actually would rather actually starve than partake of the feast. Let me give an example of that, one more personal story. When I pastored in um, Arizona, one Sunday there was a couple who came to us. Uh, a lot of times we had what we call snowbirds in January and February and March. And they visited our church, and after the service, this couple came up to me, and they said, we have a daughter in Wickenburg, Arizona. Now, Wickenburg is about an hour and a half away, and there's a number of treatment facilities there. And their daughter, their sweet daughter, was going through uh, a struggle with an eating disorder. And so they said, would you visit her? So I said, sure. So on a particular Saturday, I went, and I drove about that hour and a half, and I went to Wickenburg, and I went to the facility where she was at, and I will never forget that visit because when I met her, I didn't know her, but when I met her, I thought she was, she was, she was quite thin and she was just a, a beautiful young girl. And I sat down with her and we probably had a 45 or 50 minute conversation. And toward the end of the conversation, as I was looking at her, she kept doing this. She'd look at me and then she'd go, and then she continued the conversation a little bit and then she'd go, 
And I'm thinking, what are you looking at? And then I looked in this direction, and there was a wide window, and there was seating there, there was a big table, and there was a kitchen on the other side. And I could see that people from the kitchen were starting to put food on the table. And I'll never forget the look on her face. It was a look not of anticipation, but of dread. Of dread. Now, some of us may quietly be going through an eating disorder, and maybe you can identify with that. But I think a lot of us do not look at food with dread, right? But with anticipation, but not her. At that point in her life, and I sometimes wonder about her today, how is she doing today? But at least at that point in her life, she, she would rather withhold herself from the meal than indulge in the meal. She would rather, in a sense, starve than eat. Are there any of us here this morning who, as we look at our lives, we would rather starve than eat? Ask yourself, why? Why am I withholding myself from this meal that God offers to me through Jesus? Jesus says to each and every one of us this morning, come, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, you who are in the midst of starving yourselves, and I will fill you. Fill you with what? Fill you with something that seems almost too good to be true. I will put you in the context of life, in this culture of death and war and carnage. I will put you in touch with various joys and pleasures that you have never imagined. But you need to come. See, David did. And when you take a look at the psalm, when you look at verse 11, we have three things there, and I want to address three of them, and I'll be very quick with this. But notice in the text that David says, in this prayer to the Lord, he says, Lord, you have shown me the path to life. Or another way of putting it, Lord, you have, you have shown me the way to life itself. Now, that may seem like just a very general statement. Nothing really jumps out at you until you consider the context of King David's life. To say that, Lord, you are the way to life itself was an astounding thing because David was always living in a culture of death. Now, if you don't know anything about King David, let me tell you something about King David. If you read, if you read the Psalms, if you start, especially the opening Psalms of the 150 Psalms, you will see that David oftentimes was running for his life. There are people literally trying to kill him. So before he was king, there was a man named King Saul. He was the first king of Israel. Saul was envious of David, and he hounded him and tried to kill him with his troops. Then later on, after David was king, you have his son Absalom. Absalom tried to wrest the kingdom from his father and actually kill his own father. And then you had this arch enemy of a nation surrounding Israel at that time, the Philistines. And they were always trying to kill David and his troops. David always seemed to be on the run at some point. Rarely was the time of really peace in his life. Now, he did experience it, but oftentimes we remember the times when his life was hounded. But in the midst of that, David said, Lord, ultimately I am not afraid, for I know that my life is in your hands, my physical life. As Christians say, whether we live or die, what? We belong to the Lord. But also this, David not only saw in the Lord a source of physical life, but also spiritual life. You know, um, David was no saint. And you know what the interesting thing is, is when you begin exploring the Bible and you read, it can be pretty shocking the way it describes people. Very realistically, 
And there's a reason for that. So that as we see certain individuals really in the pit of life, we saw, see also the grace of God in lifting them from that pit. And that gives us hope. And David had hope. As I said, David was no, no saint. If you look at his life, it's very interesting. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And yet, when you look at his life, there were low moments too. There's where he committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, a young, beautiful woman. Then there was a time where David was involved in a plot to murder Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And if that wasn't enough, remember this, maybe some of you forgot this, or maybe you don't know this, but David took a census of his military troops to determine how much uh, strength that he had in his own military. And God was very angry at that. And you say, why was he angry? Because God was saying, listen... Even if you had one man fighting against an entire army, you can win as long as you place your trust in me. But David wasn't placing his trust in God. And as a result, God, because of David, punished 70,000 men of Israel with death. 70,000. Now, those sins, adultery, murder, 70,000 dead, how would you like that hanging over your head? But what we see in the Bible is hope. David owns up for it. He doesn't run from it. David owns up for it, uh, to it, and, and he confesses it, and he seeks the Lord. He seeks God's grace and forgiveness, and God grants it. So when David says, Lord, you are the way to life, he's saying, Lord, you are the source of my physical life and also my spiritual life. Can you say that here this morning? You say, you know what? God, you're just not some concept out there. You're not just some supreme being. But you are personally involved in my life to such a degree that you give me the breaths that I take. You cause my heart to beat. And you forgive me of all of my sins so that I might be in good standing with you. Can you say that? Secondly, more briefly, David says, Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy. When, when the Bible says in your presence, in the Hebrew, literally, it's before your face. Before your very face, O God, and that's a good translation, in your very presence, O God, is fullness of joy. You can't get any fuller than full, right? Fullness of joy or various joys. Many people in the world don't experience these joys, right? And that's, that's somewhat understandable. I mean, listen, this week was a hard week. You have the Russian military invading Ukraine. Everybody's afraid of what China is going to do. Everybody's afraid of the gas prices going up. They're already going up. Everybody's afraid of inflation, yada, 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 right? What's going to happen? Now you got Putin playing around with his nukes, threatening. You know, this is not a good situation, right? And here the Bible says, you know, yeah, before God, you know, in the presence of God, man, you have joy. It's sometimes hard to confess. But sometimes even in the midst of these things, there is, there is joy. But sometimes people don't see it. Sometimes people don't experience it. Why is it? Because they're looking at life on a horizontal plane and not a vertical plane. They're looking around, but they're not looking up. The psalmist says, Lord, in your presence, before your very face, it's there, it's there. Even in the midst of the darkness of this life, there is joy. Joy. There's joy. As a pastor ministering among people, I've seen that among Christians, that even in the valleys, there's a sense of peace and there's a sense 
of joy. Where does that come from? It comes from God and living in his presence. And finally this, the psalmist says this. This is how he ends. He says, at your right hand are actually pleasures forevermore. Um, elsewhere, he says in Psalm 36, Lord, you give us to taste of the river. Or he says, no, Lord, you give us to drink, to drink of the river of your delights. Now, let that image roll around in your mind. You have a river that is flowing freely. He doesn't say, Lord, you give us to drink of the trickle of your delights or the little stream of your delights, but there is the river that makes glad the city of God, as the psalmist says. There is a river that when we bow down and we taste of it, we experience the very delights of God, or as the Hebrew puts it, the very sweet things of God, which which is something that is pretty phenomenal when you think of how many alternative delights the world puts before us on a daily basis. Kind of reminds me of, um, some of you have read, and maybe you've even read it in school, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you have this young man named Edmund, and there's a great white witch who is ploying him with certain delight so that she can get some information from him. She's seducing this young boy with something that's called Turkish delight. Now, that's a British confection. I don't know if you've ever had uh, Turkish delight, or even if you know what it is. But if you, go, if you Google it and you look up Turkish delight, you'll see pictures of it, and they, they, they make it in these kind of rectangular pieces, and I tell you, it's just filled with butter, and it's filled with sugar, and it's filled with everything that tastes great, but it's really, really bad for you. Okay? And so she's ploying him with this, and because he's a young kid, he's looking really, really good, and he starts eating Turkish delight. He's taking in all the butter, and he's taking in all the sugar, and it's, it tastes great to begin with. The kids, what do you think happened to him five minutes later? It's like, oh, my stomach. That's the way it is with the seductions of this world. We got things before us all the time, either as adults or as children, I don't, I don't care if it's, if it's food that's bad for you. I don't care if it's drink that's bad for you. Um, it, may, it may be pornography. It may be uh, a relationship that's bad, that's toxic for you, but you can't let it go, right? And it keeps bringing you along, but it's never settled, right? There's all kinds of things that kind of draw us in that are not necessarily very healthy for us. And... It's a sad thing because what God in this three-course meal is doing is he's saying almost with a, with, a, with a fine glass of wine in his hand, he said, come, this is good. Drink, eat, let go of these things that tear you down for true pleasures, true delights are found with me, with me. All right. I want to leave you with this. One minute. At one point, about 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Peter. Peter was one of those persons in the Bible where the Bible doesn't sugarcoat him. Peter loved Jesus. Peter followed Jesus, but he's always putting his foot in his mouth. And there was a point where Jesus was nearing the cross and Peter denied him three times. Because I don't even know this guy. Well, sometime after that, Jesus restored Peter to his calling, and then the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. 
And it was that Holy Spirit, was the Spirit of God that gave Peter boldness to preach, just like you're hearing now. And he had a big audience, hundreds of men. And he's preaching in the boldness of the Spirit. And this very Spirit was in Peter starts to enter into these men. And they are so struck by the preaching that they, they, they cry out to Peter, what should we do? What should we do? And Peter's answer is this. And it's an answer for all of us. In light of the life and the pleasures and the joys of God that he holds forth to us in Jesus, how do we enter into these very things? And the answer is very simple. First of all, come to grips with who you really are. Come to grips with your sin and your weaknesses, as the Bible calls them, and the fact that in and of yourself, apart from Jesus, you remain distant from God. Repent. Confess these things before God, then entrust yourself to Jesus and confess that, Lord Jesus, I believe that you have taken my sin upon you so that I am set free and now I may know God. And then finally this, embrace the very things that we have been considering over the last five months, the spiritual disciplines. If you weren't here for those, if I can just mention one discipline, actually two. One is this place, worship, but also community. You need to be a part of a community of faith so that you might grow in your relationship with Jesus and discover more and more what he is all about and so that you might discover more about what it means to find your life in him and experience the pleasures and the joys of God himself. If you need to know more about that, you see me up here, right? Come talk to me afterwards. I would be glad to talk, okay? Let's come to the Lord, and let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us Jesus as a gift. We thank you that you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten son, Jesus, so that whoever believes upon him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, many of us experience that right now. We pray that you would grow in us an experience of the life that we have in Christ as well as your joys and your pleasures that you have in store for us. And Father, if we are teetering on the edge and we're wondering what this is all about, Father, we pray that you would open up our hearts and that you would fill our hearts with grace and a knowledge of the truth of Christ. God, grant that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.